Hey traders, welcome to another Performante podcast. This is going to be episode eight. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about financial speculation and financial speculation for 2020 and beyond. So my, my name is Keith and we also have Nathan on the podcast as well. There's a little bit of uh, some audio difficulties, but we can definitely hear Nathan loud and clear and uh, I'll pause, I'll pass it off to you there, Nathan. Hey everyone, just uh, glad to be back here now that we got the audio bug sorted, some kind of hardware problem. You know, sometimes this doesn't work the way you want it to, but that's the way life goes. But we're here now, uh, we're looking forward to get back into the podcast game because we have a reliable way to do it. Uh, this first one is pre-recorded, but in the future we are going to be looking to be doing these live podcast sessions to allow some two-way feedback between us and our viewers. We really want these to be engaging and interactive to allow that two-way communication between us and you, because ultimately we want these podcasts to be high value, high impact, and to talk and discuss what you guys want to hear. That being said, this first episode is about speculation and the kind of our perception of the global economy, what assets are hot, what assets are not, and kind of our plans within that macroeconomic context. Definitely. Yeah, it's been a while since we've actually made one, so a lot to go through. We're not going to go through everything, but we'll try to touch on you know, overall asset classes as well as potentially individual assets within those asset classes. So yeah, it's been an extremely bullish time since the last time we spoke. Uh, the March sell-off that we had, huge liquidation event where basically assets across the board sold off. But one really great thing is we were talking about you know gold, silver, cryptocurrencies kind of being a leader in the what you classify as I guess anti-fiat because of the money proliferation, currency printing, and uh, it's been a wild one, definitely. But uh, we could start off with crypto first, if, if that works for you, Nathan. You bet. Sweet. So uh, obviously Bitcoin, uh, around 9.2, 9.3, it's just contracting in volatility. But uh, yeah, Nathan, <laughs> we're just basically waiting for it to move so that we can actually look at uh, some opportunities. Yeah, this is one of those points in cryptocurrency. We've been here before, folks. We know we know the game plan when we're in these kinds of low volatility, low volume scenarios. And at least personally, my number one goal is to not overcomplicate the simple. I don't want to be taking trades that I don't think are great opportunities. And because the cryptocurrency is so correlated to, sorry, the altcoin uh, cryptocurrency market is so highly correlated with Bitcoin, Taking trades when Bitcoin is indecisive can be a recipe for trouble. And so my experience, my history tells me that in situations like this, I'm going to wait for directional volatility because with that comes volume. And in those instances, you're going to be able to find much more quality opportunities. Quality and quantity are two things that I want to see because when you're operating without those, you're putting yourselves in an, at an inherent disadvantage. And the cryptocurrency market, since the March lows of like 3,200, we've rebounded great. But ultimately, like the money that was made during that point in time, I hate to say it, but that wasn't necessarily smart money. That was kind of, I'm going to put money in and see what happens. Like there wasn't very much rhyme <laughs> or reason to be buying at 3,200. Because at the time, people were calling for $900 Bitcoin, $600 Bitcoin, right? There was so much fear and uncertainty in the market that... If you sniped the bottom, 
that's awesome. Enjoy your profits. But it was such a speculative time. Nobody knew what was coming that we've rebounded hard, 9,200. Um, and we're really consolidating, waiting for that next move. And until we see that next move of directional volatility, I just don't really feel that safe in the market. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm Altcoins definitely were doing better, but in terms of where you should actually be focusing, Bitcoin's going to be the number one thing that we should be looking at. And yeah, it's been doing less and less and less throughout July and, and definitely June's kind of since that consolidation started between 10k and around 80 for 10.2 I guess and around 85 but uh, I completely agree the, the big move is coming next and we've had these contractions and volatility before last one was when we broke 4200 uh, when we were consolidating at like 42 to 3200 and then we broke out we went from 4.2k to 14k that one before that was when we broke out of that triangle back in 2018 in like October ish where we dropped from 6.1 K ish all the way to 3200 so a big move is coming when we're really telling people you know you don't have to trade every single day you don't have to trade uh, every minute and, and have to be in a trade a lot of what trading is is just patience right so if you don't see something like Nathan that like Nathan said it's sometimes better to just not take trades, back test, look over your trades, look over things that uh, may help your trading out in the future, get more educated in your, in your craft. But um, yeah, there are times like this where you may not want to be putting on trades and you may want to be trying to advance your skills. So then when the time does present itself and when the opportunity is there that you should be taking it, you have that confidence and that conviction to actually put some money down to make some good profits. Yeah, exactly. It's a waiting game, and uh, you're playing hide-and-seek with the market. You just got to find your place until you're ready to execute, and anything short of that 100% confidence is just going to hurt your ability to be effective because traders need capital, and if you waste all your capital on subprime opportunities, are you really even fucking a trader? Like, that's just the bottom line there, right? Definitely. And so you have to recognize situations where you're at an inherent disadvantage, and sometimes it's best not to try and push through. It's best to reallocate your energy elsewhere. Like Keith was saying, backtesting is a great thing to be doing, to be practicing those skills, reading, listening to books, trying to learn from other traders, and really master your craft in ways that doesn't put you in financial risk. Or even alternatively, trading other asset classes. Like we've personally been loving the gold and silver action that's been going on, other forms of sound money. Um, because ultimately, in the context of what's going on in the global economy, I think sound money, uh, specifically for those who don't know, sound money is the idea that some currencies are untouchable for manipulation purposes. So if you look at the US dollar, um, it's printed on a basis decided by people, so that is a fiat currency, and it, sound money encompasses more things like precious metals, gold, silver, and cryptocurrencies. And really, uh, that's been the focus in the last couple of months. I think that's where a lot more opportunities have been, and I think that's where a lot more opportunities will be in the coming months. Definitely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, a lot of people, as well as the actual data that is coming out, is suggesting that cryptocurrencies right now isn't in the same basket as gold and silver with the actual correlation. So it's not just looking at a chart, but it's an actual mathematical uh, formula that creates 
either negative or positive correlation. And Bitcoin right now is actually positively correlated with the SPX or the S&P 500, which is a risk on where people are wanting to speculate. And it's more positive compared to that with then gold, which is a risk off, more of a safe haven in times of monetary uncertainty. But I do think that big shift will occur where people around the world will worry about inflation, not just in the United States dollar, but in currencies around the world. It's not just the Fed printing a lot of money, but it's every major nation's central bank is printing a lot of money. So... You know, it might not hit the market right now. Things in economics take a lot of time, but this sort of story has happened before where something negative has happened to the economy. Central banks try to stimulate it through lowering interest rates substantially as well as printing money. And we've seen this story before. Look at uh, America back in the 50s and 60s. They had extremely low interest rates, like around 2% due to the war and all that stuff, Great Depression, kind of following into the war, and it's just been lowering and lowering interest rates until like the 50s and 60s when it was at the lowest point ever, and that was a boom for America, right? Post-war, America's on top, it's the number one country, you know, they won the World War II, so they're feeling absolutely unbeatable, and they have extremely low interest rates, people are spending, increase in velocity of the currency, and what happens, right? Uh, in the 70s, especially in the late 70s, there was major, major inflation. Consumer price index, CPI numbers were in double digits, inflation was in double digits, uh, oil was absolutely, it was way too expensive for an everyday individual to actually purchase uh, gas and that was the environment that was created through the easy money, low interest rate policies that were the environment of the late 40s, 50s and 60s. And from my point of view, and I think Nathan can say the same, we're in a very similar situation right now. Obviously, we didn't have a World War II or anything, but we had COVID, right? Which is, you know, you could argue that it's sort of a war, an invisible war. That's what Trump is saying as well. Back then, it was kind of the worst of it. So it's a very similar structure in terms of the central bank policies that they're creating for extremely easy money, low interest rates, which simple mathematical um formulas in, in economic state that if you substantially increase the supply of something, you know, if the demand doesn't increase as well, it's going to decrease the value of it. So definitely, I would say the main thing that we're focusing on here is going to be assets that have a fixed supply, like Nathan said, gold, silver, and crypto. Yeah, I think that's really the place to be, because ultimately, the I mean, we tried to fight the Fed. Yeah, yeah. Fed, fed, fed one, money printer goes burr, <laughs> yeah. lost no shorts, right? Yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, in hi hindsight's always twenty twenty. but with every loss, there's a lesson. Definitely. And in hindsight, my perspective of what's going on in like the macroeconomic sense is that money is being, sorry, not money, air is being pumped into a bike tire that has a hole in it. And more air is coming in that's going out, and eventually it's going to pop. But there's still a steady, a steady removal. And so ultimately, cash is being injected, liquidity is being injected, debt is cheap, and it is being used to prop up an economy with fundamentals that are so fucking bad, it's astounding. Like, if you look at the tech bubble, going into the tech bubble, interest rates were like 7%. Um, tech bubble happened, interest rates went down to like 3%, they went back up, housing collapse in 07, 08, 
going into that, they were around 6%. Obama administration lowered them all the way down, uh, and they never came back up. And ultimately, I think that's where a lot of our problems are residing, is that we're in a situation where the Federal Reserve has two strategies, uh, quantitative easing and repo operations. Repo operations they've been doing just to prop up the economy. But the interest rates are in such a precarious place because we're in economic crisis and we have no leeway with the interest rates. They are riding 0%. That means debt is essentially free to borrow. It encourages speculation. They're trying to stimulate the economy. And... In an economy that requires stimulus and repo operations, interest rates go hand in hand. They're rock bottom, and realistically, the next step is negative. And I think within the context of modern history economic policy, going negative is a very significant, a very significant step for America, let's say it. Because hypothetically, you get paid to borrow money. Now, I doubt that that... that uh, that rate would ever be conferred to the consumer because that's not how commercial banking works. But in principle, you can get paid to borrow money. And that in itself is adding fuel to the fire because debt has never been higher. Debt is how this economy was made. And unfortunately, I think debt is going to be the ultimate demise to the economy. Yeah, I c couldn't agree more. Very true. They literally only have one thing that they can really do. And they have many words for it or or phrases you know japanese say different to america but it's, it's just printing money right trying to create aggregate demand through the expansion of their balance sheets so i think the, that being I, said i i think japan's a very interesting case study because they're approximately like 20 25 years ahead of us in terms of the generational cycle because our generation's led by the baby boomers in that they have the wealth, they have the equity, but Japan's slightly different, right, Keith? Yeah, definitely. So they're around a little bit over 20 years on average in terms of the demographics forward compared to the United States. So they have around 20 years older on average of uh, the average age of a person. But what they've done, actually, the more I look into it, it feels like the less I know because I did a lot of work and digging on Japan because it's unbelievable the amount of debt that they've actually created and the amount of money that they've been able to print, but still they don't have inflation or hyperinflation, right? They've printed more money than the United States. They have had lower interest rates and have negative interest rates way before uh, America, like by far. So in theory, it should set up environment where inflation is going to come in because since 1989 that was when the Japanese asset bubble popped and it was unbelievable how big it was I watched a documentary called Princes of the Yen which I think every single person who's interested in economics should watch uh, I watched it recently but in the documentary they said that a piece of real estate a large piece of real estate right next to the Emperor's Palace in Japan at the peak 1988 1989 uh, the cost of that real estate was as much as the entire state of California in 1989. How does that make sense? I have no idea, but people took out, you know, a hundred year mortgages. That's how unbelievable it was, right? People in their 20s were buying three, four estates because the banks had to lend out a certain amount of money in certain sectors on a quarterly basis. It's called window guidance, where central banks say to commercial banks, 
you have to give this amount of credit to certain sectors and real estate is one of them. So it was the biggest bubble that I've, I've kind of come across in just economic research, but you know, they still haven't had inflation and it's just massively low velocity and, and the saving mentality. So like the whole discussion of inflation, I do think that it's inevitable, but when there is huge pressures in deflation with the aging demographic, savers are not going to be uh, spending more money. They're going to be, you know, having their traveling distance smaller. So if you get older, you're not going to go long distance trips and stuff. You're just going to stay in your little circle, your little community um, and spend less money. You're going to probably live off your capital that you saved up and, and invest it and hopefully low off dividends or, or real estate rental property income or something like that. So they're not going to be reinvesting. They're going to be using that money to to, to live. So that's deflationary pressure as well as obviously the lowering of velocity of the currency. But it, it kind of shows you, and this is why a lot of policymakers are pointing at Japan and saying, look how much more stimulus that they've injected in their economy. They had the biggest, the second biggest economy other than America. And look how small of a country it is back in, before it burst, I think in 88 or 89 or something, they had the second highest wage for people on average compared to America. And this was just done through like central bank controlling commercial banks. It wasn't free markets, right? Like everyone says free markets is the best thing um, that an economy can have. Well, Japan didn't have that at all. They had the Bank of Japan tell central banks, you have to give a certain amount of credit to each sector. And it was basically a war economy focused on creating consumer goods and they weren't focused on profits they were focused on market share and that's how japan came to be like an extremely dominant producer of consumer goods um and it's pretty unbelievable but it's it's a little bit contradicting what a lot of what i thought to be true in terms of inflation so um we'll see it could take a very long time for the united states to see the inflation that a lot of people are looking for like taking going back to the 40s the late 40s 50s and 60s you know it took basically a decade in a, or a decade and a half 10 15 years to really start to see the price of goods and services go up to a point where people are rioting and, and you know telling the government this is not all right we can't afford to live anymore it took a long time right and we're only now um let's say I guess 12-ish years in from 2008 when they really, really started to start implementing quantitative easing with the uh, financial crisis and what led up after that with the three quantitative easing. So we're in and around that time from the previous massive inflationary event that happened in the United States, but um, we'll definitely see it within the financial markets in the lead up to it. Gold's already on the move. Silver's already on the move. It's just a matter of when the real, real uh inflationary worry starts and and we can see that just through the cpi numbers consumer price index when the consumer starts to feel the hurt of devaluing currency that's when things have to change because if it's two percent three percent a year no one's really going to notice but if it's 15 20 30 40 percent a year then people are really really going to stand up and say this is not okay i want change and that's when shit really hits the fan because what, what what do they have to do right if they have if they're going to control inflation they have to raise interest rates if they're going to raise interest rates they're going to basically 
put a shit ton of bearish pressure within the stock market or equities market or overall business environment because right now a lot of businesses are afloat because it's really easy to borrow money and gain credit but if they make that more harder and if it's more difficult to obtain money they're not going to be able to sustain their business because a lot of companies are what you classify zombie companies where they're borrowing just to pay off the interest on the principal and they can't even make enough money to pay off the principal so they're basically on a treadmill that they can't get off just paying off that interest and, and that's what you classify as a zombie company and that characteristic is only going to be increasing if this continues if the system with low interest rates money printing continues it's only going to increase in my view i'm looking at you uber <laughs> <laughs> for real but i think that i mean just building off of that zombie company idea there's the theory that the longer a bull run goes long goes along the more extravagant and extraordinary the ipos will become and looking back in the last two years, I think we've definitely seen some IPOs that were trying to cash in on the market momentum. Um, just naming definitely. some off the top of my head. Uh, I think Uber, they've kind of passed that stage because they're definitely, they play a major societal role. But I was more, I mean, Uber is a zombie company, but the more extravagant IPOs I was thinking of that come to mind, Lyft, uh, Snap, WeWork, Beyond Meat, all these companies um, came into fruition uh, between like 2018, 2020 kind of vibe. And they've definitely uh, have piss poor balance sheets. All they have is debt. Very few of them have actually have like a balance sheet that is net positive, have any profit to show. They might have revenue, but that revenue is ultimately going to come at a cost. And that's kind of the fundamental principle behind these companies is that because interest rates have been so low for so long, they can afford to take on debt to create revenue because assuming they have a good product, they'll eventually become profitable assuming debt stays cheap. Like I think that, that's the paradigm there, right? Yeah. Like if debt stays cheap, then stupid companies can exist. Definitely. And, and they seem great, right? Because people are speculating. Like uh, another one that I was thinking of is Nikola, ticker NKLA. Oh my God, yeah. Like they literally had just like a design and they had some sort of, I, I didn't follow up too, too aggressively on it, but they were basically counting a sale of a vehicle, even though it was just a deposit of like a fraction of the cost, but they were actually... In, in, accounting for the actual revenue of the total vehicle for sale so basically fraud yeah. i believe the deferred revenue is being portrayed as real revenue by mass media even though that's not how balance sheets work like if you put a down payment not a down payment a deposit on a vehicle that doesn't exist yet the company doesn't have that as revenue that's deferred revenue but the mass media jumped on. All these investors were calling their revenue crazy, even though they still don't have any vehicles in production. It's just a matter of, hey, we've sold a lot of deposits to people online. Let's build the hype. Let's skyrocket the stock price. Let's cash in on the EV vehicle craze. Because I think that's a commonality in the market right now. Um, my perspective is that you have piss poor academic sorry piss poor economic fundamentals and you have booming tech stocks nasdaq's at all-time high 
Amazon, Netflix, Facebook, Google, etc. All these companies have absolutely obscene evaluations. And that in itself tells me that there is quite a big bubble underneath. Because the first thing that people do when they get a Robinhood account is probably buy stupid tech stocks. (laughs) And I think that there's been a large amount of novice investors attracted to the space. And I think there is a large amount of people chasing profits. And ultimately, uh, from the fundamental regulatory from the financial regulatory standpoint, we've built ourselves up onto quite a house of cards, let's call it. And if you pair that with, uh, let's say, the average investors who's in the profit right now, the people who were blind buying the bottom, um, they might not necessarily have the best risk management, which in itself adds to the house of cards we found ourselves in. Yeah, and I so agree. what happens when the wind blows? That's the that's kind of the question. We have no wiggle room with QE. Repo operations, I mean, the boy Jay Powell himself has said there's no tangible limit. They will create as much <laughs> money as, as necessary. And so when that sell-off happens, it's probably going to be really fucking bad. Yeah, that I completely agree. And what is kind of scary to me is back in 2018 to 2019... We had that massive drop in the S&P 500 with the trade wars, and it was really aggressive right before Christmas of 2018. And that was when a lot of people were thinking, oh shit, is there a potential recession coming? Just with the trade tensions, right? And also the increasing interest rates. I think they were slowly trying to create a little bit more um, of an interest rate hike, but that was the first worry like for me at least and i think for a lot of people but we got a massive v-shaped recovery back in 2018 so a lot of people were like oh shit that's awesome right markets are super resilient to trade tension now think of the setup and think of the confidence that these novice investors have with these index funds thinking they're never going to go down right if you think that a trade is never gonna go against you and what in your mind is a guarantee that the Fed will save you no matter what, you're going to over leverage, right? And especially with with the, the pandemic as well as with the social unrest in the States and the stock market still moving to the upside, a lot of novice investors are thinking, okay, well, I'm just the next Warren Buffett. I'll just perm along, ultra leverage everything I have and I'll become rich because the stock market can't go down. Mr. Powell will save my day, will save my ass every single time. There's never a guarantee in the markets ever, right? Things inevitably will come down sometime if they're this hyperinflated in my point of view. So it's really setting up a lot of retail investors to have a really, really negative time because if it if it's gonna go down, they think that they're geniuses because they bought the dip, right? They're like, oh shit, well, the stock market's always gonna go back up and Jay Powell's got my back, so I'm just gonna 10X, 100X long the S&P where it looks like you know it's sometimes gonna hit a support and they've got rewarded, right? In the two previous major corrections. So if another one comes, I think the validation of the two previous times will make investors even more confident and have the highest level of conviction to put as much money as they can on this third move down because they think that they're just going to continuously have a dip by opportunity and it's never going to actually start to go down. So it's really setting up the psychology that equity markets are forever in a bull run. 
And that's a very dangerous place to be. The, the 20s thought that, right? They were giving uh, money to speculators. Everyone thought that they were day traders and going to be the next Warren... Well, Warren Buffett wasn't really, obviously. Uh, yeah, but um, that, that's a yeah, really I, dangerous spot to be. I think we're at a time where... Uh, I think it's the negativity bias is really prevalent in that people underestimate the probability of a negative event happening because it's against their psychological bias. You know, like, there's no investors out there, or maybe a lot of the investors out there aren't really recognizing the risk that's on the table because they're so focused in on the bull run and what next EV company or biotech vaccine research is going to hit the market. And ignoring the possibility of a negative outcome is dangerous. Because ultimately, you want to you wanna have your account prepared for whatever is thrown at it. And failing to do so is not putting yourself in a position to succeed. And I think that operating within the current space of cautious optimism is the way to go. You know, we, we fought the Fed in March, and now we're operating at a time where we're taking quality setups. We, we're looking for opportunities for longs. But in the same note, we understand the mechanics behind the economy and the house of cards that it's built on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think just the ability of being nimble and flexible with your plan and not being married to an opportunity or a bias or direction is really important. And I think that separates novice traders from the people who are actually being able to trade in any market condition because it's really easy let's say if you're in 20 late 10, 2017 you could long almost anything in the crypto market and you're pretty much going to be making money you could set not even a stop loss and inevitably it'll probably move up above your entry and you're making money but you know this is the time where true traders are created uh, in, in my opinion because you do have to look at the market in both perspectives both viewpoints and create a plan that is able to capitalize on, you know, if it continues to the upside, if this whole environment is not really going to change until it gets worse, or we're going to have structural reform sooner than later, and 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 we were we are prefer, prepared for that direction as well. But um, right around thirty minutes here, um, going to try to write, write, wind it up. But uh, I thought that was a really really good discussion for us to get back into the podcast game and uh, get our get our feet back on the ground in terms of uh, getting these more consistent for our viewers. Yeah, I'm glad we could finally uh, get back to it, figure out the hardware problem. Uh, costed a couple hundred dollars, but anything for the Performante team. Uh, yeah. We're glad to be back in it. Ultimately, just to summarize, we're cautiously optimistic we recognize the risk that's on the table. We're looking at sound monies. Specifically, gold and silver have been the bread and butter for the last couple months. Um, cryptocurrency, there's been we've been catching Cardano, we've been catching Link. Uh, a couple of these alts have been popping off. But ultimately, when it comes to that major market mover, being Bitcoin, um, we're staying patient. We don't want to force anything. We're cautiously optimistic. Um, but given that the halving was just in May of this year, uh, there is a supply-demand shift in motion. 
and ultimately there will be directional volatility but our experience tells us stay patient stay on our toes because it's cryptocurrency right this is the wild west anything can happen yeah that's a really good uh sentence to end off the podcast i think a lot of good a lot of good value in a short amount of time in that sentence for sure all right, All right, let's uh, let's wrap it up. Uh, this has been Nathan and Keith with the most recent Performante podcast. Get prepared for more of these because they're going to be coming your way. Hope you have a great week, great day, whatever it may be. Take care, everyone.